Thank you, Mary. We'll be reading from John chapter 6. John chapter 6, again in verse 28. There'll be other verses that we'll be reading throughout the message. John chapter 6. While you're turning, of course, let me remind you that the footprint of our church is far greater than just uh, in North Louisiana and South Arkansas. We have some ministry partners, and you see over on my page of the bulletin, first of all, we're continuing to take our offering for the crusade that will be held uh, in October over in uh, Tabora, Tanzania. Uh, we've been training, uh, EIM, our partner in ministry, has been training 22 pastors over in uh, Tanzania. And this has been a six-year process, and these guys are trained, and they want to really get to work. So they have formulated the plan to rent a soccer stadium, 50,000 people capacity, and have a three-night crusade in a predominantly Muslim country. And this crusade, of course, uh, costs quite a bit of money, and money is scarce over in Africa as well. Uh, the lights, the sound, uh, other issues that will be uh, involved will be uh, about $20,000, and they're well on their way. If you would like to help with this, there'll be ushers at each door again today, and anything you give which would uh, really be welcome for that. I'll be uh, anxious to uh, give you a progress report uh, later on. This will be, I believe, October 7th, 8th, and 9th, uh, sometime over in October. Uh, also, one of our other ministry partners, uh, Brother Jeremy Hambrice, uh, he and his family moved down to the jungles of Papua New Guinea. They're in the States now. Uh, and their work there has been phenomenal. This has been the kind of thing that it goes into history books. Here's a culture that didn't even have a printed alphabet. They did not have a printed alphabet. Now they have Bibles translated into their language, and a church has been established, and they're evangelizing that part of the country. And Brother Jeremy Hambrice will be here next Sunday night uh, to share with us what's going on and uh, the work there. It's, it's a phenomenal to hear what God has done in just two and a half years. Uh, sometimes these works take decades to take hold. So you need to come next Sunday night. Of course, I remind you next Sunday morning uh, to hear Brother Jeremy Hambrice. Uh, they're here in the States for a while, uh, and it's a little bit of culture shock, uh, especially for the girls who have grown up uh, the last two and a half years over there in the jungles of New Guinea. Uh, and he wants to share with us, and of course, we're ministry partners with him, and we send money monthly to their ministry, but as we always tell our ministry partners, we're more than just a check. We always want to hear from them, see what things are happening, see if there's anything special they need and any prayer requests. So you come, make sure uh, that you're here next Sunday night. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 28. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? John chapter 6 beginning in verse 28. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, 
Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Down in verse 47, most assuredly, I say to you, he that believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for showing us who Jesus is. As we see who Jesus is, we ask that you reveal who we are. And we realize who we are as a people in need of who Jesus is. We ask that you would just make these messages clear to us. Deal with each of us according to what's going on in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Who is Jesus? It's a big question. Sometimes you'll see these documentaries on television, maybe on the History Channel or something. And the question was, who was the real Jesus? When it comes to who Jesus is, who Jesus was, the real authentic answers will always come from Scripture. And of course, a lot of times people get concerned. They said, did you read that article? Did you hear on the History Channel? They found some obscure documents that have something different to say about who Jesus is. And they come and they present this kind of hyperventilating as if it's something new. And did you realize the church fathers, the church fathers, the next generation after the disciples were all aware of these documents? It's nothing new. Then, then why then are these documents not in here? Because the church weeded them out. They knew that they could fact check because a lot of these things were written at the time when the guys that were still alive with Jesus were around to say that's not how it happened at all. And of course, they had their own disciples who could fact check later and say that's not how it decided that it happened at all. And a lot of these documents that they're looking at that propose to have something new about Jesus are old documents. And what happened was the church began to circulate the letters and the gospels. And the church began to realize which ones were true and which ones were not worth it. And here's what's most important. At the time which these things were being vetted, if you want to put it that way, there was a decree from the emperor of Rome, you could be killed by having a copy of scriptures, by having a copy of the gospels, by having a copy of the letters of Paul, by having a copy of the letter from Peter. When it comes to scriptures, you could die for it. They had to realize quickly what was worth dying for and what was just rubbish. And a lot of what people are clinging to to say, but you know what this said about Jesus? You wouldn't believe what that said about Jesus. It's nothing new. The real information about Jesus will always be found in here. As we mentioned last week, John records Jesus using the phrase, I am. 
over 25 times just in that book. Six of these statements paint a portrait of Jesus. Some very notable statements that give us a picture of who Jesus is. Not was, but who Jesus is. Because I am is not in the past tense. And Jesus still is who he says he is. First of all, why is this important? Why is this important to know who Jesus is? Here's why it's important. There are many counterfeits. There are many counterfeits. Now, a lot of times when we talk about Antichrist, the word that comes to mind in the term is the leader that, of course, is mentioned in the book of the Revelation. The Antichrist, the world leader that will sweep the world off of their feet and he will lead the world away from all things pertaining to God. Well, the word Antichrist is mentioned several times in the New Testament and it refers to several things, not just that one leader. You see, Antichrist is not a title for a person as much as it is a description of something. You see, Antichrist means two things. Anti, of course, we know means against. Antichrist means against Christ. And there are many counterfeits that are against Christ. This word, Antichrist, came into the news again this week. I'm not sure if you saw it. News article. There's some concern about a Disney series. A Disney series called Little Demon. Cartoon. It's our cartoon about a kid. And the kid's claiming to be the Antichrist. Now how about that? How about that? A Disney cartoon with that kind of subject matter. And the hero of the cartoon series is the Antichrist. Now, we may act very concerned, and that's true. And we may act surprised. How did this happen? Jesus predicted this. Jesus predicted in John chapter 15, verse 18, the world will hate you because it hated me before it hated you. And anyone that hates me, he said, hates the Father that sent me. You see, this whole thing about a a Disney series that would make a hero out of Antichrist reveals a continuing resistance against God and the thoughts of humanity throughout history. See, Antichrists have been popping up since Jesus because Jesus said there's a continuing resistance against Christ and Christianity. We see that in the arts. There's some filthy art out there that ridiculed the church, ridiculed Jesus, and ridiculed God. And, of course, it is celebrated as art and, of course, First Amendment speech. And, of course, the government has to protect speech of all things. But the fact that that art is out there identifies a, a deep-seated resentment and a resistance against Christ. Academics. Academics will a lot of times take extra efforts to make sure to point out that none of this happened like the Bible said it would happen. And, of course, politics. Did you know in China it's against the law to own a Bible? 
I would say that is a definite resistance against all things God. Why then would a government fear this? You see, it's because of a deep-seated resistance to humanity to God. Another thing, and this is just an everyday world. You say, I don't know. I think you're just paranoid, preacher. I don't know if there's a deep-seated resentment against Christianity. You people are always got a chip on your shoulder and you're sensitive about this. All right, tell me one thing. Somebody gets mad. They really, really want to cuss. Whose name do they invoke? Does anybody invoke Muhammad when they really want to cuss you out? Absolutely not. Does anybody invoke the name of Confucius, the name of Buddha, the name of Lenin, the name of Marx? Do they even invoke the name of Satan? Absolutely not. What name do they invoke when someone really wants to say something dirty? God's name. Why is that? It's a deep-seated resistance against God. Even the atheist will use God's name in vain. Isn't that something? The one they say doesn't exist, they'll evoke his name when they really want to say something dirty. And spend their lives fighting something they say isn't true. Why, why would they do that? Because even though they say it's not true, there's a deep-seated resentment in human hearts against and human culture against God and against Christ. And so we have to know who Christ is because not only does antichrist mean against Christ, antichrist means another Christ. You might say, well, I, I, I never would believe anybody came and said they were another Christ. Oh, it means anything. What it means is this. Anything that replaces Christ's rightful place in your life is anti-Christ. Whether it be stuff. What I'm talking about, what's on the throne of your heart? What drives you? What's the most important to you? What do you pursue in life? Are you thinking about the things of God or are you looking for money, popularity? Power, convenience sometimes takes the place of Christ. Sometimes people take the place of Christ. And I don't know how many times I've seen it. Young people de dedicate their life to the Lord. They, they get saved at camp and accept Christ or at, at one of the youth conferences and they're on fire for the Lord. And then, then they meet somebody. They meet a good-looking guy or a pretty girl and sweeps their heart away, but they're not dedicated to Christ. Now, in order to please that person, they lose all interest in the Lord. It's not just young people either. See, a lot of times, friends, buddies, running companions, girlfriends, boyfriends, they become anti-Christ in that they take the place of Jesus in our life. Now we realize, oh, that's a lot more common than we think. We thought the anti-Christ was that one person there. Now we realize they're popping up everywhere. So it's important for us to know who is Jesus because there's so many counterfeits that want to take your heart away from Jesus Christ. What is the best way to identify a counterfeit? Well, we go to the U.S. Treasury. 
the experts, the masters in identifying counterfeit currencies, they don't spend the majority of their time looking at the counterfeits. They look at the real money. They know every single characteristic of the real thing. Anything else is a counterfeit. You see, there's a million different ways to counterfeit money. So they would just be chasing rabbits all day long to chase this counterfeit or that counterfeit. How do we weigh out if something is true and something is real? We have to know what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, what it says about Him, and what it says about following Him. When we know the real, genuine Jesus Christ, we will be able to spot the counterfeits. That's why it's important to look at what Jesus said about Himself, the I am statements. Jesus is dealing here when he had to say, I am the bread of life with two spiritual problems. The first spiritual problem has to do with the blindness of unbelief. The blindness of unbelief. In verse 30, therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? They had just said, what do we do to work the works of God? What do we have to do to be right with God? And he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. He said, okay, if we're going to believe in you, we need, to, we need for you to do something special. What sign, what miracle, what trick are you going to do that we could believe you? Now, I have to understand, if you'll read the whole chapter, these are the very people that ate lunch the day before with just two fish, and five little biscuits. These are the same people. The same people saw something miraculous. And in time, these people had already seen or would see lepers cleansed of this incurable disease. They would see the lame get up and walk and take their pallet. They would see blind people open their eyes and see very clearly. Deaf people would hear, and it was not enough. It wasn't enough. They still wouldn't believe. And even when they saw Lazarus come out of the grave, it says many people still didn't believe. How, how much proof do you need? What kind of trick did they want? You see, they said, we'll believe you if you do a trick. We'll believe you if you do something amazing. What he did surpassed anything that they could ever, ever imagine. However, when it comes to unbelief, there is no proof that is adequate. They're always looking for proof. You know, Jesus said the same thing about people not believing, even when it came to the point of someone coming from the dead. You remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's interesting that name pops up in the story. And the rich man died, and we see later on, he died and he wakes up away from heaven, right? And it's not because he was one of those snooty rich people. The word that is mentioned here is repent. Here's a man who died because he pursued something else besides God. And he says, Lazarus, who was outside of his gate full of sores, died and he's in heaven. The, 
the man away from God sees him up there. And he says, you've got to send Lazarus to my brothers. Please send him to my brothers and tell them about God. Abraham says, they've already been taught about God. They've already heard about God. They have Moses and the prophet. They've been preached to. They've presented the word of God. He said, no, no, they won't believe that. But they'll believe if somebody comes from the dead. And he says, no, they won't. If they will not believe the word that is given to them, they won't believe even if someone came from the dead. And Jesus was right. Lazarus not only came from the dead, Jesus came from the dead. And you know what the leaders wanted to do? Cover it up. And you know what humanity's tried to do since then? Cover it up. You see, when it comes to unbelief, men have made up their mind and they ignore the evidence. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We mentioned this Wednesday night. Good passage to have. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Listen to this. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they were without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And the Bible says very clearly in Psalms chapter 14, verse 1, the fool has said into his heart, there is no God. And what Paul is saying here. Every aspect of creation points to the fact that there's a God. But you have academics that will take the same evidence and they will point to the thing. There was a big bang and an accident and everything just kind of came together on its own. And they will say with definite authority, there is no God because here's the evidence. And the Apostle Paul said, here's the evidence. There is a God. And the attributes of God can be seen with the preciseness and the grandeur of creation. And even Darwin himself said, if the complexity of the cell and of all of the world is such where it can't have happened like I said it was, my theory breaks down. Darwin placed his theory of evolution when all you saw under a microscope was a cell that looked like a fried egg. He did not know about DNA, the complexity of chromosome, the complexity of amino acids that all have to come together at precisely the same time. They can't chain themselves together. There's no way it could have happened by the accident according to the complexities of creation. However, Jesus had to deal early on with the blindness of unbelief, and we still deal with the same blindness. Therefore, he made a very blunt, unmistakable statement of who he is. So there would be no excuse as if we really didn't understand what you were saying. But also, he had to deal with the priority of temporary trinkets over eternal treasures. Back up a couple of verses from where we read in 
in verse 26. Looks like they all followed him across the lake after the uh, feeding of the 5,000. In chapter 6 of John, verse 26, Jesus, he ratted them out. All looked pretty good. Wow, Jesus, look at all these people. They can't get enough of you. And what did he say? He answered them and said, most assuredly, I believe the King James says, verily, verily. You know what word means? Truly, truly. In other words, I know this for a fact. This is as true as it can be. Truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're looking for me because you want the free meal. That's what you're after. Don't labor for the food which perishes, but the food endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on them. And that's when they said, well, what can we do to get this? Well, you mean believe in you, then, then what kind of trick are you going to do? You see, he was dealing with the priority of temporary trinkets. Jesus was speaking of eternal life. Jesus was speaking of spiritual things. They wanted free food without working for it. And many souls have rejected Christ because of a misplaced pursuit of temporary stuff. Didn't have time for the Lord because they were too busy with a career. We understand the obligations of a career, but for what reason? Just so we can make more money and stick it back? God, we don't have time for Jesus. We've got to make more money and stick it back. Sometimes they ignore Christ because of pleasure. We don't want to do without the behaviors that God says should not be in the life. Of a dedicated Christian. Sometimes popularity. Oh, they'll laugh at me. So the convenience of temporary popularity will lead people to say no to Christ. Sometimes it's plain old laziness. It's just a lot easier not to serve Jesus. See, all these are another master in our heart. And you see, our pursuit of temporary trinkets many times derails the eternal treasures that God wants to give us. So he gives them the crystal clear information. We finally get down to the I am statement. He said, I am the bread of life. Said it four times. Is there a mistake? I am the bread of life. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. But we realize, he says, I'm the bread of life. See, thirst is understood by all of humanity. Every individual knows what it's like to thirst. And we mentioned this last week when we talked about the woman at the well. There's a thirst in the human heart for God, even though men resist God because Unfortunately, this thirst for God will cause men to just lap up everything else but God. Any habit, any pursuit, any pleasure, anything, but there's a thirst in the human soul for God and people are longing for God. They don't, may not even know it. and They're looking all over the world for purpose in life. They can't find it. And we know that thirst is something we can all identify with as individuals. And hunger. We all identify with hunger. And there's a hunger for God. But people want to satisfy it with everything else. I call the human condition kind of something that's similar. And I, I experienced this sometime about 11 o'clock at night. You ever been there? You, ever, you know what the munchies are? 
you're hungry for something. So I'm going in there looking in the cabinet, and I'll eat a whole sleeve of saltine crackers. No, that wasn't it. I'll go and try to find me some potato chip. No, that wasn't it. And I go try to find two or three things. Finally, I'm just bloated, but I never found what I was looking for. You ever been there? Yes, you have. We've all been there. That's the human condition. Men are bloating themselves with garbage in their lives when really what they're hungering for is a relationship with God. And that's when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now, thirst and hunger may be very easily identified by us as individuals, but when he said, I'm the bread of life, very easily understood by all, watch this, cultures. You see, every culture has its own food. And every culture has a lot of different kinds of meat. Every culture has a lot of different kinds of this. Every culture has a lot of different, but every single culture has bread. Every single culture. Especially when Jesus was talking, because before refrigerating shipping and big grocery stores and all these things where we can have a lot of different kind of food. You may not have a big variety of food in your house. You may not have meat but once or twice a month, but you always had bread. You always had bread. Every culture always has as their basic foundation for their diet, bread. So when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, there is no culture in this entire world that can identify with that. Now, it's bread of a different kind. I mean, it, it takes all kinds of different forms, but always bread. Everybody knows what he's talking about. Oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. I can understand that. I do understand that that's the basic essential of life. And, and when cultures in that day and time, that's what they ate every day. They may not have fresh vegetables and fruit every day. They may not have meat every day, but they had bread every day. So Jesus said, I am the bread of life. That is what kept them alive. It was the basic foundation of nutrition. Verse 48, he said, I am the bread of life. In verse 51, I am the living bread. It was no, it was no question what Jesus said he is. I am the bread of life. And we understand this is much more than a free meal. He didn't say, I'm going to give you some bread today. He wasn't talking about physical bread, but he said this in verse 47. He who believes on me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. And then he said this in contrast, your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they're dead. Oh, that was a miraculous bread, but it was physical bread and it only did them for that day and then it was gone. I am the bread of life. I can give you eternal life. And he said this, I am the living bread. The bread of heaven, uh, uh, the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Whammo. We know now he's not talking about wheat, corn, oats. If any man eats of this bread, he will live forever. But then he said, This bread comes with a price. The bread which I shall give is my flesh, which I, I will give for the life of the world. He hits the nail on the head. I'm providing the bread of life. The bread of life is my flesh, this body, and I will give it for the life of the world. And that's what he did. You see, we never need to forget the fact that the living bread, the bread of heaven, came at a price. Our eternal life came at a price. Jesus Christ gave his 
flesh gave his life for this. So we understand there's quite a bit when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. The bread of life is my flesh I give for the life of the world. A lot of what takes volumes of theology, he said in just a few words, where everybody could understand it. Now, here's where it gets personal. I like bread. In fact, I'm a bread junkie. I love bread. I like biscuits. I like homemade rolls. I like homemade sourdough bread. Cookies can kind of be bread. Okay, we just throw that in there. But, I but especially bread. I like bread. But I can have the best pan of homemade biscuits on one of these cold winter nights. Oh, just come out of the oven. Those biscuits won't do me a bit of good until what? I take one and eat it. You see, it's my personal, my personal decision what I'm going to do with that bread. The best bread does you no good if you just leave it alone. Jesus Christ is the living bread, the bread of life, but will do absolutely nothing for your life until you make a personal decision to partake of that bread and to believe on him with eternal life. Wow. What a picture. I am the bread of life. And Jesus wants that for you. You come to me, you'll never hunger. You'll never thirst. And I'll give you eternal life. That's a picture all of us could understand. You see, that's the real Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Gospels. The Jesus of Scripture. What will we do with what we've heard today as we stand and sing? Number 154.